You are what I write. Like this town. It wasn't here before I wrote it. And neither were you. No. I know what's real. I know what I am. And nobody pulls my strings. Did you think my agent attacked you by accident? He read about you. In there. He knew you'd bring it back and start the change. Make what's happened here happen everywhere. Try to stop you. I'm not a piece of fiction. I think therefore you are. Read it if you don't believe me. See what I have in store for you. Know what I am? Welcome back to another episode of The Spark. We have a returning, I'd like to say family member of the uh, Project Archivist group, James McDonald. He's been on our, for lack of a better term, mother show of Project Archivist. And I wanted to have him on The Spark tonight to talk about writing and you know what drives him to writing and uh, the horror genre and everything on the scope of what goes into the production. In the creative process. So have at it. Have at it. That's a dangerous statement at this point. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so we'll go with Jim McDonald. Um, I'll probably out myself a little bit more as we go along. Uh, so I write outside of the day gig. I write across a lot of different genres. I do fiction. I do nonfiction. Um, I, I deal a lot with people who are writers, speakers, that sort of thing, helping them develop stuff from a nonfiction side. I do a lot of tech writing. Uh, I do a lot of consulting work around that. So I'm, I'm generating a lot there. And then on the fiction side, I, right now I've been pretty heavy. I've got a couple of series going that are more mythology-based, horror, fiction, uh, last year I had a, small, a short contemporary piece come out. I had uh, the third book in the series come out last year. I had a novella come out last year. Um, so, and this year I've got uh, book number four should be coming out. It's running behind because uh, because of a couple of other projects I'm doing. So one of the ones that I'm doing right now is called The Writer's Mind, which is a, all about the business side of being a writer, being a creative, and it's going to be book, podcast, video series, a lot of free stuff, a lot of paid stuff, um, sort of running along the, the gambit. And that's been going for about two and a half years. Last time I was on the show, it was like, so when are you going to do a damn podcast? Yeah. And I said, yep. um, well, 
And this project started because I've got so many friends that are writers, that are creatives, that are artists, that, that do all sorts of stuff that ask me questions because I get that look that says, you're like one of those business people, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, you're, you're one of them. So I have a question about X. And so I, I, you know, I, I'm always willing to run my mouth about most anything. And so I kept doing that and I started writing more and more articles for it. I was putting some up on my website. I've been writing some of them for a few other sites and whatnot. And I kept looking for, honestly, a book I could hand people and say, here are the basics you need to know. And I couldn't find it. And so as things are want to happen, you know, if you can't find it, go create it. And so that's now been about, like I say, about two and a half years in the in the development process, which obviously is a little bit longer than I planned on. But, you know, the whole work day gig and actually wanting to get it right. Um, and right now, the, the first book in the series is in Alpha Reads. I'm doing some changes, doing some edits. Uh, I've got about 20 authors, uh, several publishers, a few artists that are in the group now that are going to be my beta reading team. Uh, they're going to be, be going through and helping. And so we're shooting to have the first book out later this year. Uh, last weekend, as I, I sort of ramble on, I actually did. Uh, we had Con Carolinas here in Charlotte last weekend, and I did an hour-long presentation on intellectual property. How do you secure intellectual property? And it's going to be like that. So it's not like intellectual property, but uh, we did record that. I'm cleaning it up. So that'll be going up on, on that set here shortly. But I sort of run the gambit. I'll, I'm pretty much willing to write about anything as well as talk about anything. So I guess where do you want to go from there? I mean, if you want to talk about talk about me, where I come from, from that side, I have always written. My mother was an English teacher. I read voraciously. I, I write voraciously. I mean, a large part of my job, my career, everything else has been writing documentation structuring notes, you know, all the, all the fun, boring stuff. Um, but I started, yeah, I, when you're going and you're doing a lot of, a lot of talking, I mean, most of my career, even though it is technology based, most of my career is really about the people side of things. Right. Yeah. Mom was an English teacher. Okay. Um, I, I've always read, I've always written, I've always sort of had that outlet, you know, growing up, we traveled a lot between politics, business, all the, the sort of stuff that, that doesn't go on in most people's lives. So when you travel a lot, and especially, you know, think about 70s and whatnot, if you're crammed in the back of a car for a long trip, uh, yeah, there weren't a whole lot of things to do. There's no iPods, there's no you know, iPads sitting there, there's no video. What do you do? You read. Um, so I've always read a lot. I've always written a lot. I, I And voraciously crank out pretty much anything you know, whatever it is I need to be working on at a time. So a lot of that becomes habit. The first stuff that I started having published about a hundred years ago um, was back in the late eighties when I was in college um, and I started doing a little bit of the media route, worked for school paper, wound up getting an AP press pass. So if one press pass, one, one set of credentials wouldn't get me in another would, um, and so I was doing a lot of the media stuff for all through the time I was in college and for a few years afterwards. I started getting some short stories and things like that published during those days, those years, back when it was a lot harder to do than it is today. 
and did that for a long time. I mean, I was, was cranking stuff out on a, on a very frequent basis. And then I, after I graduated and was out for a couple of years, I went on the road, uh, started consulting tech work. Uh, and one of the joyful things that you discover when you're on the road is a, you don't really have a schedule. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, other than, Hey, this crazy client needs you here tomorrow. Um, you know, there, there's nothing like the great joy of being in three, four five cities in the same week. Um, thankfully I don't do that anymore. Um, but going through and living that, that way, one of the habits I got back into was writing because if you're sitting in an airport, if you're sitting, uh, sitting in a hotel bar, you're sitting in a hotel room, you don't really, you can only watch so much bad TV. You can only read so much. Uh, you can only do so many things. And I went back to, to writing. Well, the other thing for me is that the exercise of writing is very cathartic. It is good for my stress management. And it also, is a tool that lets me process out what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So I use it for a long time. I just used it as a tool to help process through stresses or whatever I happen to be working on. Uh, and there's nothing like the great joy of if you spend enough time sitting in hotels, airports, sitting in the, in, in the hotel bar or the, the restaurant bar to get something to eat at 10 o'clock at night, you get to see all sorts of interesting people. And <laughs> so you start playing the game, especially if you're, if you're on the road by yourself, you start playing the game of, gee, wonder what they do. Uh, you, you start mimicking, you start playing out conversations, things like mm -hmm. that. And so I've had a lot of inspiration from a, a lot of years of being on the road. So that's really kind of where my writing comes from. I've always done it. And it's one of those things that, for me, is truly an outlet. I can understand. I mean, you look at you look at some of the greats throughout history, going way back to like uh, Maupassant and Poe, Dunsany, Lovecraft. You know, they they always took their characters from life. They started their characters from people they came in contact with, something they heard, something that struck them as odd or made you know gave them pause there's a story of lovecraft and his wife sonia they were on a beach and they heard some grunting in the grass or in the bushes and that was uh the impetus for one of the stories that he had pushed his wife to write it was it was just a simple noise that they had heard that didn't it was just out of the ordinary and a story was written about it after thinking about it and toying with it and I have to imagine that with all the travel that you've done and with all the people that you've come in contact with, there's got to be characters in your stories that the impetus for them came from people you ran across. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, there's very few, there are very few characters I use in books that are not at least modeled to some extent on somebody I've come across. Uh, if you look, I, a lot of the female characters I write are very strong. They're very driven. They're very, you know, some of them are compassionate. Some of them are cold. Well, that comes from my, my family. I mean, I've, I've always been surrounded by very strong women, very strong female figures. So I have never liked to write the shrieking scream queen. Right. I've done it for sick humor value. But 
I don't like to write that because to me that that really degrades and devalues the people and the characters you're dealing with. I mean, yes, you when you're writing and to reach out to people and have them understand on, on a subconscious level, you write to archetypes, you write, you know, people want to see good and bad. No, the good is good. The bad is bad. And, but you also want to see and understand that there's a certain reality behind that. You want to feel that there is at least some, some degree of reality behind any given character that they've done what they've done for a reason. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Poe. I am a huge fan of Lovecraft. If you looked at the, the bookshelf behind me over here and looked at the a lot of the more much, much older texts that I have on in digital form, I mean I've got a dictionary sitting next to me that goes back to the seventeen hundreds. Nice. nice. That belong that actually came up through the family. So that that's one of the things I've got I'm sitting here looking at and if you look at my bookshelves, because I've been redoing my office, I mean, I'm sitting here looking at Robert Heinlein. I'm sitting here looking at the complete collection of, um, of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Holmes, because I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of Sherlock mm. Holmes. The early days, the later days, those stories. Jose Farmer. I, if you look, I got a lot of the classic work. Heinlein, Stranger in a Strange Land. One of my favorite books is sitting here within a foot of me. Uh, sta you know, stacked on top of that is Good Omens, Terry Pratchett, Neil Gaiman. And then you start looking around. I've got Richard Cadry sitting on top of that. I've got, if I look around, I have so many different books, styles, things around me. Now, the reason I like horror and, and the reason I write in some of that genre is because you can get a depth there of character and you can get a depth of story that will evoke an idea, will evoke passion within the person who's reading it. But one of the things, I, I was sitting on a panel back in April. We were, we were I think it was RavenCon. We were sitting there on a panel and somebody came up and said, well, what do you think is the better genre to write in horror? Is it to do it in science fiction, urban fantasy, or horror? And I said, you can write horror into any genre. You can put horror into any story. I don't care if it's a romance novel. Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can have horror in pretty much anything except for a textbook, and the way some of those are written is, is <laughs> horrific. A different level of horror. <laughs> it's a different level and a different type Indeed. of horror. Uh, you know, going back to to the short story I did last year, I was in a charity anthology um, for for anti HB two here in North mm -hmm. Carolina, which was all about the the ridiculous bathroom stuff and the way that the bill got blown up and and everything and all the fallout. A uh, friend of mine here, who was a publisher, put together a charity anthology for it and was like, are you going to do me a story? And I said, uh, I don't know. I'll see what I can come up with. And I was sitting there and had an idea, and I didn't know if it would work or not. It, I, I will say this because I've had enough people tell me it is probably the best story I've ever written. And the parameters behind it were that it had to be based in North Carolina. Uh, you had to be an author in North Carolina, and it had to have, LGBT characters or themes. Mm -hmm. 
that didn't have to be the focus, but that had to be part of it. And it, it's written, it's not written as a horror, but there is a, there are certain horrific parts of it that drive and evoke emotion. And it's a piece I'm actually very proud of having done, but I mean, it's, it's a nice contemporary piece. But if you look at a very base level part of it and part of what reaches down into you, because it's, it's about the trauma that people go through that quote unquote, don't fit in. It's about the trauma about people who are, are, are feeling maligned, who are feeling out of the norm, you know, all these sorts of things. And, and that's really what the story is about. But the other part of it is it's truly a love story. If I made it a man and a woman, if I made it two horses, it's still truly a love mm -hmm. story when you read it. But there, there are horrific parts to it because of what the two, the two characters in it have to go through. Uh, you know, if I look at some of the other stuff I've written, you know, one of my, and this is going to sound a little off. One of my best selling books is a short novella I wrote. And I, I told the story a couple of weeks ago. Somebody asked me why I'd written the story and I'm sitting on a panel. We've got, I don't know, about 40 people sitting in a room. And I said, well, I had gone to um, a, a writer's workshop called Police School for Writers. It used to be in Greensboro. Now it's in Wisconsin. I went to the first year of it in Wisconsin. Had a great time. Uh, you know, you're sitting there, you're going through abnormal psychology. You're going through tactics. You're watching actual video from police stops. You're watching shootouts. Uh, it's a four-day intensive that is held at uh, a police training academy. You go out on the runway. They've got you know, a, a 737 out there for HRT training. Uh, you go through and you can do SWAT training. I mean, it, it is a full training facility. The people who run it are all in law enforcement uh, or a couple of guys that are retired. And it was interesting. It was, I, it's difficult to say it was fun, even though we had a good time. It was very educational. And I'm sitting on the plane coming back and a bit drained because you're, you're then trying to process through uh, because I had sat through about two days of abnormal psychology and serial killers um, and Dr. Catherine, and I just went blank, who wrote the uh, BTK killer book, Okay, uh, was, was one of the speakers that was there and she was in the middle of writing that book and she was still doing the interviews with Rader at that time. So she actually talked about the interview process. She talked about what she was going through writing that book. So it was interesting to see that while that particular work was in process. Well, I'm on the fl on the plane flying home, and I'm like, okay, I need to turn this into a business expense. And so I'm like, I need to write a murder mystery. And I come, I walk in the door of the house, and I had gotten something from Think Geek. I open it up, and it's a gnome that stands about two feet tall. It's got a Tommy gun, this really <laughs> wild look on his face, going, "Say hello to my little friend." <laughs> And I said, okay. And the, the idea hit me. Somebody's murdering gnomes and turning them into garden statuary. Oh, that's and great. That's, <laughs> that's the that's book. Great. And so I tell this story. Three people stand up in the audience and went, take my money. Oh, shit. And, <laughs> and the moderator looks over and goes, can you wait till the panel's over? I'm like, hell no, they got cash. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, 
And so then I had multiple people who, who took it, read it that weekend, came and said, okay, I'll take all the rest of your stuff. That's all, that makes you feel really good. Um, so, and it's, it's written, even if I'm writing some of the darkest stuff, I have a twisted sense of gallows humor. I, I have to believe that if you're in that position where it is the darkest of days, things are totally going to hell. You know, you're, you're dealing with a predator in the woods that you can't see. It's bouncing around and it's killing everybody. And you see the, you know, the body's hanging from the tree and you're going to look at your buddy that's dead now and go say, why are you hanging that's around? Awesome. <laughs> you know, it, it's a bad joke, but you have, that's me. I have the gallows humor. And I've got a friend of mine who's got a story he's been working on for a long time that is this dystopian, it's even darker than reading the road. Um, I mean, you, you're, you're sitting there and you read the first chapter and it's like, can I just go dig a hole, <laughs> climb into it now and you can just bury it over. Don't even worry about putting me out of my misery, just bury it over. And I looked at him and I said, if things are that damn bad, the vast majority of people are going to stop oh, functioning. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and I said, you have to have a little bit of humanity left. If you don't have that spark, see uh -huh. what I did there? If you don't have that spark of humanity left sitting there to hold on to, to grasp onto, people are just going to, well, they're going to do one or two things. They're going to revert to that absolute animal state, or they're just going to curl up and die. And the vast majority of people will curl up and die. And I'm like, that's, that's neither entertainment, nor is that something you're going to take anything away from. I'm not saying there's not value in it because there's people that have written those stories. They're very strong. They're very mm -hmm. powerful. I don't want to write no, that I don't shit. Blame you. I don't blame you at all. Um, because that's digging yourself into a deep, I, I mean, to get into the position where you're writing that sort of stuff, you're digging a deep, deep hole and climbing in. And then to get back out of that, you know, I don't want to create something that will put my readers into that right. dark of a hole. Yeah, I could, I could understand um, that. So it, I'm very, I won't say I'm very selective about what I write because a lot of the time it's what is, what am I, what do I feel compelled to write? Um, but at the same time, if I wrote, if I did nothing but take my ideas list, I've got working right now and did nothing but work on that for the next 300 years, I'd have them all outlined. That's it. You know, I, I, because no matter what on any given day, I've got uh, 10, 20, 50 ideas that go into a variety of books. Now, not all of those complete story ideas. Some of those are just, Oh, that'd be funny to use or that would be powerful to use or, or whatever the case may be. And I'll make a note of it. And then, you know, come back, grab it later and say, that's, you know, and, and use that. But ideas for me come in a flood. And part of that comes because I'm continuously reading. I'm continuously watching. I'm continuously dealing with things. I listen to all sorts of things. I, I, I deal with things on the technology side. I get to see and play with bleeding edge ideas, but I also still have a fascination with people and religions and cultures 
And if you look at what I'm working on reading right now, it's a book on cold reading and how that works. Uh, a couple of fiction books. I'm working on. I'm working my way through a couple of them that are on uh, the legalities of space programs and what case law is for space programs. Uh, if I, I'm also working my way through a couple of the jokes again to sort of remind myself how some of that goes and some of that works so that I don't get myself too far off track. I mean, I. I'm never just reading one thing. I'm never just watching just one thing. I'm always sort of sucking up a continuous flow of data until I need to shut down. And, but I mean, that's, that's just sort of the way I work. Um, so, I mean, that's, that for me is, is really how it goes is what is the next craziest thing I can dive into? You got to wonder, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a writer. I, I can't, I, I, I used to journal. I was told to journal by my sponsors. I, I just can't do it. I'm, I'm a, I read, I watch, I listen, I, but to put pen to paper, my handwriting looks like chicken scratch as it is. And to watch me type is like two chickens fighting. It's not, you know, so I, I don't, the reason why I wanted you on here is to, to understand the process that goes into it, you know, and it already sounds like, I mean, you're, I, I know what it's like to have a constant stream of information coming into me at all times, but I don't have an outlet to get rid of it other than the show, you know? So yeah. <laughs> I envy you for that. Well, and, and my wife will tell you that, if I don't have an outlet um, or I don't exercise my outlets frequently enough, um, I become slightly unlivable. Uh, I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I realize that might be a shock. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. But, yeah, I, I, I embrace my outlets. I And it's one of those things that, you know, I have friends that are, a friend of mine was like, Hey, we're doing, we're going to be on the CW here for the flash and we're doing this thing again. Hey, you want to come on? I'm like, dude, I'm two and a half years behind on watching that shit. Yeah. Huh? I don't, uh -huh. <laughs> I, I don't watch that much TV, even stuff that I really want to watch or I enjoy, or it's a good release for me. I like things that have more complex stories. I like things that, that work their way through in not only episodic arcs, but also have overreaching arcs. And I mean, that's most of what we have today and anything that I, that really is going to get me interested as a general rule also means it's a time commitment. And so my, my average day usually is I'm, I'm putting in about 50 hours a week. Plus, if there's other stuff working on the side, and I still generate about 3,500 words a day on average. Uh, on weekends, I will generate uh, frequently five to 6,000 words a day. And that's between books, articles, editing, uh, you know, variety of projects. I mean, but right now, my average day is I get about 1,000 words a day in on book four. I get about 1,000 words a day in on a new series that, um, was sitting at dinner the other night and a friend of mine was like, so is that shit done yet? <laughs> and he says, and are you going to send it to me? And I said, well, uh, it is almost done. And, um, 
And he says, well, fine. Are you going to send it, send it to me? And I said, yes, I'm going to send it to you. I've already talked to, I, I've already talked to Jay and everything else. And he goes, all right, just send me the shit. <laughs> and I, I will tell you that. All right. I'll tell you this part of the story just to, to round it out. So John Hartness writes horror. Uh, he's also a publisher and John, uh, he, he's also a theater major or theater and has, has a long career in theater and, and stuff as well. Well, John could sell ice machines to Eskimos that have no power. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> and it, and if you read his stuff, it's funny, it's fun. But I mean, he writes he writes horror, and you know, Bubba the Monster Hunter. He writes. Wait, he, he's that's got him? one. Oh, yeah. all right. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, so John's here, uh, and. He will, if you're walking by his booth, he will look at you and go, buy my shit. <laughs> That's it. And people will look at him and go, huh, and walk over buy and shit. That's they'll awesome. buy his shit. And it's that that's his pitch line. It doesn't work for anybody else. John sits there behind his booth, and I mean, but that's his tagline, and everybody knows it. You walk by, he's like, hey, come here. That's buy awesome. my shit. That's awesome. Now, <laughs> you know, granted, John's pretty well known. People know him, everything else. But if, if you don't know him, you just can't help but to walk over and go, huh, okay. <laughs> and so, but that's his tagline. And if you saw the bad video we did from RavenCon where I got talked into doing a duet of Paradise by the Dashboard Lights, that was filmed by John down on his knees, which meant my lack of singing. I could not carry a tune and a bucket loader. <laughs> I was laughing in even more out of cadence because it was John doing the rock star photographer slide on his knees in the middle of the hotel bar. Um, so yeah, that's, if you saw that it's bad, but yeah, I'm willing to own it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I was going somewhere with that, but I, hell, I don't remember. Um, I, I, there was a point there. I'm running low on caffeine. It's not good. That's not good. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, so, but yeah, it, it, if you're looking at the other side of writing, so most people think in terms of writing of, I want to lock myself in a room and write. Unless you're Stephen King, I don't think that's really going to work out. The answer to that question would be, you are correct. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Uh, you know, we now live in a world where it used to be a matter of if you got a book out a year, maybe two a year, you were prolific. Uh, now, people shit. are just pumping shit if, out. Yeah, and and you you have to to be known. And I don't pump enough out right now of the fiction to keep up with that. And I know that I'm aware of that. I know where my career is at. I know what I'm doing with it and, and how it works and everything else. And, you know, so the fiction I'm doing, I'm doing because it's what I want to do. It, it's selling pretty well. Um, most people have fun with it. My favorite review of all time was the first one star review I got on Amazon. Uh -oh. And, and somebody just came and said, I don't get it. And I looked at them and I sent back a note that said, thank you. I appreciate that. You're not my audience. Fair enough. I, I, you know, and that's what I said. And I wrote a blog post that said, 
I finally got a bad review and I wrote it like a little celebration. But if you're a writer to get stuff out into the market, you've got to have a social media mm -hmm. presence. And trust me, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of social media. I, I go on that rant periodically when I do my privacy is dead long life, long live privacy <laughs> speech. Um, you know, I'm, I don't mind getting in front of people and talking as is, is right. obvious. Uh, you know, I love doing conventions. I love doing events. Uh, they're a lot of fun. They, they can be a tremendous amount of fun. They can be tremendously educational or they can be tremendously draining. And it really depends on the crowd that's there. Um, but if you're going to be a writer, the other thing you got to learn to do is sell, treat it like a business. So when you finished writing that baby of yours and it's nice and it's beautiful and you think that it's going to be loved by everybody, you take that soft, nice, peaceful, creative side of you, you lock that whiny bastard in the closet <laughs> and then you whip out the red pen and you look critically at your own work. Because number one, if you don't, your fans, your prospective readers, your customers, uh, those people who don't like you are going to do right. that for you. Uh, the other thing is that you have to learn and have a bit of a thick skin that not everybody's going to like what you write. Not everybody's going to like your style. Not everybody's going to like your content. You know, if you haven't pissed some people off, you're not right, doing yeah. it right. <laughs> That's true. It's true in a lot of different aspects in life. Yeah, I mean, and so if you're going to be a writer and you're going to be creative and you're going to have to live that balance, that is an extraordinarily hard thing for a lot of people to do. Um, and, and like I say, I know some brilliantly creative people. Um, you know, I know some people that put out some beautiful work, can't sell it for mm. shit because nobody sees them. Nobody knows they're there. Um, it's not because they don't put out good work. It's because it's hard to get above the noise and it's hard to get above the garbage. And so if you're, you're out there and you're competing in the market and you're trying to build up that name and you're trying to, to get out there and really build yourself a career, that is a very different game from I'm a writer and I create content because I enjoy it. And so the first thing I tell people is if you want to write, know why you're doing it. Because I will tell you to make a living at it, you can do it. I have friends that do it quite well. You've got to be prolific. You've got to be out there. You've got to be working. And it's not just about creating content. You've got to be prepared to invest a lot of time. You've got to be prepared to invest a lot of capital. You've got to be prepared to, to get out there and hustle to get above the noise. And so if you look at being a writer and being a creative, I mean, again, I work in a tech field. I work in hard sciences. I work in, in very hard, very fixed environments. But at the same time, I'm also very much creative. And the way I operate and, and for what I've done as a career, I'm a cleaner. I'm a fixer. You call me because you've got stuff that is broken. And I really believe it's because I have both of those sides that allow me to walk in and see 
things differently than most people see. Hey, you're Harvey Keitel. Not you're a wolf. Yeah, pretty much. Um, except I'd like to think a little bit nicer, <laughs> but I've got some people that will tell you I'm a raging <laughs> asshole. Uh, That's great. But like I say, it, it's all about knowing what it is you want to do, why you want to do it. I mean, I it's been a while, but I mean, I blow glass. There is nothing that will get your attention and be more freeing and focusing than playing with a blob of a glass at a couple of right. thousand degrees. you got to pay attention to that. And, and so if I'm getting locked up and frozen on one thing, I'll go to another. But I love to play with glass because you get to watch patterns and movements and the fluidity in the glass. And seeing things like that and, and the kind of focus it takes. And I'll throw some fairly heavy stuff on. I may throw on, you know, music wise stuff in the background that's loud thrashing everything else. But it's about, there's an energy in the glass. Well, the same thing is true if you're writing and you're working with words and I don't care what you're doing, what you're writing, what you're being creative with is there's a certain energy to it. There's a certain life to it because if you're truly being creative with it, even if you're writing a textbook, even if you're writing a Harlequin romance novel and following the formula, there's still a creative creativity to it. And that has to come from the energy you're pouring into it and the life you're giving to it. And that for me, again, comes back to being that cathartic thing. But at the same time, you have to remember you're creating a product. And if you intend to sell that product, if you intend to publicize that product, you have to, once you've given it life, you have to make sure that it's something that other people want to know is out there and is not, you know, the mutants from, you know, uh, Toxic <laughs> Avenger. Um, it's not a trauma so film. I, no. Um, yeah, I went on a bad film fest a couple of weeks ago because I just had sort of hit the, the point of I needed to clear my head before, oh. before doing a string of events. Um, and I will tell you, I watched Death Race 2000 oh. with the guy that was the, the one, not no, the original. the remake. Not oh, even the remake. This was even worse. It's the one that's out there. Oh, on dude, right that now. is terrible. Um, that is, oh, that, well, uh, I've seen worse. Yeah. I've literally seen worse. Yeah, I usually can't sit through worse, but for somehow or another, it was just one of those things that, yeah, I put it on as background noise and I got back to work. Yeah, I could respect that. You don't want to sit through the whole thing. Uh, don't do, no, do not no, sit through that movie. No, no, <sighs> but I mean, I'm, I, again, sometimes you have to look, at, like I, I, I I am a huge fan of Ed yep. Wood. I am a I am You're a huge alone. fan of all the old yep. Hammer films. I'm a huge I love all the old 40s, 50s, 60s B mm -hmm. horror movies. Sci-fi movies. I mean, Creature from the Black Lagoon is still one of my top top five favorite movies. And I've seen it in the three theater in See, 3D. I saw it. We're in the oh little my God. I saw it. Now mind you, I'm I was born in 75. So it was way out of the movie theaters at that point. But I did watch it in 3D in my house, and it was in black and white, and you had to have the special glasses, the blue and red glasses. Yep. And it was, I, it was awesome. It was awesome. 
I'm not that much older than you are. No. Um, I was born at, I was born clawing onto the ass end of 1969. Oh, right. well. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's great. Um, <laughs> so you're not a relic yet, but well, that depends on uh. who you ask, but it, I got to go one when I was a kid, small town in the South, they had a film festival retrospective. So every week during the summer, they showed one of the old black and white mm. 3D movies. So they pull in. So they showed Creature from the Black Lagoon, Return of the Creature from the Black Lagoon. It came from outer mm. space. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I went and saw all of them and and loved every one of them. I think even The Blob, the original one, was one of the ones that they did in 3D. That's just... So... That movie was great, too. <laughs> the Blob was great. The original Blob. Any of the remakes were rubbish, but the original Blob was good. Yeah, you're, you're being kind, calling them rubbish. <laughs> but part, part of why I love those is because they had this really basic but impassioned storytelling. And they had... The music, they had the sound effects. They, you were wrapped in an experience, and to watch those, you know, is very different from hey, let's go to the slasher flick. I will sit there and howl at most of the bad horror movies if I can sit through them that long because I'm like, "Eh, yeah, pop the popcorn, keep going because they they lack story, they lack any reason for me to give a shit about whether or not, you know, the the screamer is going to die in the next five minutes. In fact, a lot of the time I wind up and start reading for the bad oh, guy. Always. You gotta, um, that's why I love Jeepers Creepers so much. The bad guy wins. <laughs> yeah. So it a, a lot of it goes, and I will tell you, I did not recognize for the longest time why I loved those movies. and the, Because mm-hmm. it's because there's such a strong story behind it. Um, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time is still Arsenic oh, Gold so Lakes. Good. That's such that's such a I mean, who would have thought two little old ladies? You know, it's You never met my great aunt. Yeah, right. <laughs> See the, the the characters in that reminded me of my grandmother and some of my aunts. It's like two nondescript old women that are up to no good. Yeah. I'm, I, it, 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 the characters, the storytelling, even though if you want to go back to it, fundamentally, that's kind of a horrific oh, totally. story. It's totally a horrific story. See, what's lost nowadays with people when they think of horror, they're confusing it with gorer. It's not. Yeah. yeah Torture uh, Exactly. Um, horror is about atmosphere. It's about the storyline. It's about character building. It is it's it is a work in like alchemy. When you really yeah. think about it, the way they that the old horror movies and the old suspense because I absolutely adore suspense. Thriller suspense, old like I, I I almost fell out of my chair when I saw that they're redoing uh Murder on the Orient Express. Oh I why, really? Are you yeah. upset? Really? I well, love Hercule Perot, and it seems as though... I do as well. It seems as though the guy that they got to play him from the clips I saw does a very good job of playing the stoic, 
uh, emboldened wise man. I hope I have not. I haven't seen any of the clips yet. But when they grabbed that, and I was like, "Oh, oh, yeah, I don't know if they can do uh, that or not." Got Look, go on YouTube and watch uh, the clips, the uh, trailers. It okay. I got I'll go do chills. that now. Uh, yeah, I like I say I saw that, and it was just one of those things. I was like, mm, because there are several films of of recent years that I went and caught remakes of. Oh, that looks like it ought to be fun. Mm. No. Um, and, and so I'm hoping we've, we've done so much with period pieces and so much anymore. Now they treat that like a period mm. piece, not as mm. a story set in a given period. Right. And that's what I get worried about anymore is they spend so much time about the effects and the environment and building that up and lose the right. story. I mean, if you look at, if you look at Sherlock Holmes or you look at Hercule Poirot, Either character, I mean, you could literally take them out of their era and put them in today, and they would still hold up as excellent characters, even in the modern world, because of the way the character was built. But, yeah, you're right. When they, when they, they focus so much on the eloquence of the scenery and making sure that everything is absolutely perfect so that the haters can't say, well... You know, this piece of damask fabric isn't from the right period. It's from five years prior. You know, you lose, you lose it. Like I was, I'm a, I was a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes. The story, my still to this day, love Sherlock Holmes. Didn't really particularly care for the way Basil Rathbone portrayed him because it was still the bumbling Watson. But right, the Robert Downey Jr. The, the remakes that were made, they did a really good job in the fact that they showed Watson as a, I mean, for God's sakes, he was a war veteran of the Afghan army. I mean, he was a veteran. Yes. He wasn't some bumbling fool. And Holmes was a gritty, opium-smoking, hard-nosed guy. You know? I mean, he was a real detective. Like, when you think about what a real detective is, using their mind, using their body, using their everything they have at their disposal, that was the epitome of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, a lot of the stuff that he used in his stories wound up becoming innovation later. He inspired law sure. enforcement. He inspired absolutely. procedure. Uh, and, I, like I say, I have always been in love with the stories of Sherlock Holmes. I've, I will go through and read them. You know, every once in a while I'll grab one of them because you can plow through it, but you really have to read it and savor it and go through and pay attention to the detail. And then if you look at who Sir Arthur Conan Doyle really was versus the characters mm -hmm. he wrote, you know, looking at the spiritualist movement, looking at how he treated so much of this, you know, there was a, a lot of truth to where he really began to 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 regret and really loathe the characters he created, and you can see it in some of the later yeah. stories. I think that's I think that's part of why you see him torture him with the opium. I think that's why you see him slipping a little bit further into madness is because he didn't want to do any more Sherlock Holmes because it it was becoming further and further 
from who he was as a person and an author versus where the characters were going. And I think you can see that in, in the stories. Yeah, definitely can. Definitely can. And, you know, I, like I say, if you, and if you go back to Lovecraft, I love reading Lovecraft in small yeah. doses. I've gone, I've gone on Jags where, oh yeah, I'm going to go plow through. You can't. No, that's a bad is, idea. You, that, it's a bad idea and you lose something yeah. from the stories. You, you, you lose part of the setting. You lose part of that character. If you look at Mountains of Madness, everybody goes to Mountains of Madness, but there's a reason for that. Um, you know, the story, the character, you're not seeing the monsters. You're not seeing the, the creatures. You're in his yeah. head. Although, you're, in Madness, he, it, I think the explanation that he gives, that, that is probably the most fleshed out of his of his creatures, you know, because yep. if you go back to uh, Whisper in the Darkness, there's very little description. I mean, they're spoken of crinoid things, but even the description of the bodies that were, you know, uh, found after the floods, it's it's very tertiary. He doesn't really give it a whole lot of ex explanation. And then Haunter in the Darkness, there's like, there's nothing. There's a there's a trapezohedron. There's something dripping acid in the mm -hmm. in the belfry. There's darkness, and then he goes crazy during the thunderstorm. So, because it's and here's what here's what I think is beautiful about that is because it allows you to construct in your mind what is great yeah. horror. What's the one great thing you? can't necessarily fully comprehend you can't construct in your mind and by representing the line the trapezoid the he's really describing the effect not necessarily what he's combating and i think that that is reflective again of where he was um and i think that's part of what was he he could not define monsters in his own mind and so when he was writing to try to get them out he didn't know how to define those either. You know, I do have a, a, a knitted baby Cthulhu sitting over I, I here on my desk. I have that was made by Aaron, uh, Aaron Botello. She <laughs> made one of me, and, it, and it's holding in its hand. She knitted a little tiny wolf. So it's it's baby Cthulhu <laughs> and Howler. And I'm like, okay, pe people oh, walk hysterical. into my house like, what the hell is this? I'm like, you don't know who this is? You honestly don't know who this My kids know who this is. You know, but I mean, again... It's it, psychological horror, the atmospheric horror story, the uh, the truly bizarre. Um, it, it's been left in the dust for all intents and purposes. You find there are people that write in that manner. Like Scott Sigler is a beautiful example of that. And he uses um, scientific yeah. prose and like hard-based fact in a lot of his stuff. But it's still, like, I mean, God, the scene with Mommy in, um, oh, what the hell was the name of that? I, I wanted to say Nightbreed, and it's not. I don't, no, it's not. Uh, I don't remember which one that is because it's been so long. But that, it's just, it, it's terrifying. It's terrifying that it, it's it, it's it's not what it's what's being said. It's the image you get in your head of the description that just you're like, oh my god. 
Yeah. And I mean, this is one of those things that I think we've lost so much of is we used to trust people to be able to help complete the story Mm -hmm. in their minds. And now we've got to tell them every little detail because we don't want to fill the holes. Right. You know, true fans, true readers, true consumers, the people who devour material build universes in their, in their heads. And and they fill a lot of it in with the ideas that they already have. But so many people just want spoon feed it to me. Let me go through it and let me come out the other side. You know, a lot of the writing, I, depending on what it is, I don't use heavy description. I, I still do a lot of the, the more traditional, let you build the picture of how you want to see it. You know, I'll give enough detail, or at least I think I do, to sort of let you build that world and give you the key details you need to know about it. I try not to get too expository. I do every once in a while, and I catch myself going, yeah, you've been reading Stephen King again. <laughs> um, and if I go and I look, I I really love that idea of trying to complete the picture in your head, trying to complete the story in your head. You know, it, it pulls you further, it pulls you deeper into the idea sure. of story. You know, I did a, a sh- I did a short story that won a second place award. Um, two years ago. Uh, if I think about it, I'll put it back up. It's just a little piece of flash fiction that I wrote in about an hour because it was, um, they posted up a contest for Halloween for, had to be a thousand words or less, and it had to be a story from the viewpoint of the monster. And now I'm now getting ready. I'm, I'm working on turning it into a full-length book because I had way too much Ooh. fun writing it. And the, the the reviewers who, uh, and it got performed by, by a theater that was pulling second place. Uh, so it was performed by, by radio theater, but the reviewer came out and she said, sultry yet <laughs> horrific. And I'm like, I'm like, how many ways you could take that? But it, part of the reason I had fun with it is because uh, I used the mythology of the, of the boo hag from um, low country, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Boo hag is, you know, kind of part of that the usual old hag yep. myth, which I love that concept, except for the fact that the boo hag can spin her skin off onto a spinning wheel and take the skin Ooh. of her prey. That sounds like fun. And so, yeah. And so playing with that um, was a lot of fun. And it's very nice. It's very twisted. And I started outlining that story, and I, I started going down a particular path, and I realized it was not going to work for that story, but it would work for something else, which has now led to an entire different project. But it, you know, a lot of the time, I like the short stuff. I like that ability to create that vision that, that you go through so fast. You go and say, what the hell did I just read? You know, I, that... Twilight Zone feeling of I see it coming. I think I see it coming. Why the hell didn't I see that coming? <laughs> um, one of the things that I, I, I describe, so if I get pulled into, and I, I do a fair amount of talking about 
being a writer and writing and, and you know process and system even though i'm fairly incoherent i think this evening no you're fine um if you go in if you look at that one of the things i recommend people they do is go back and listen to old classic mm. radio shows because if you listen to them you discover the formula you you find how well they did the three act play you find how well they set environment in very few words you find how dialogue can move and have moving dialogue. And a lot of people look at me funny and I'm like, no, really, go go listen to those 30-minute radio shows. Go listen to – go back and listen to War of the Worlds from H.G. Wells. You know, if you're listening to that and find the power in that and the, where it draws you in. But if you look at the scripts for any of those, they're really quite yeah. short. Well, they built the atmosphere. You, you have to build the atmosphere, and you have to do it yep. fast. And so I love doing the novellas. They're a lot of fun because, like, my novels tend to be around 100, 105,000 words. Um, and so when you're going and you start weaving in plots and subplots and somewhere, and we were talking about this this, this past weekend, you know, somewhere around the sixty to seventy thousand word mark, you're like, I suck. <laughs> Every word I'm putting down sucks. I suck as a writer. I hate this book. I hate these characters. I never want to do this again. And then about ten thousand words later, you've gotten past whatever that is at that sixty thousand word mark. Then you get back to that seventy, seventy-five, and it's like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and is neither a train nor do journey. So let me get back to writing. But there's and it seems to be for everybody I know, you hit about that 60% mark and you look at what you've done. And because the idea is still incomplete, you're looking at your rough draft going, this is shit. <laughs> this makes no sense. It is incomprehensible. I can't even get it straight in my own head. How the hell is anybody going to ever read this? Oh my God, this is garbage. Oh, this makes sense again. I can finish it now. Um, you know, I've taken books, I, the, the third book in the series, I tossed the first third of it, I think three or four times, you know, and we're talking 30, 40, 50,000 words. I kept ideas. I kept small parts of it, but I was writing part of the story. I didn't want to write because I was going to kill <laughs> someone. Now they've been lined up to die since day one. If you know anything about mythology, you know they're going to die sure. on day one. But yet, I still didn't want to write that scene. And right now, I actually was running the same problem on book four um, because, again, I've got another one of those big impactful deaths, and I had to actually go and write the scene towards the end of the book where there's retribution. To go ahead and so I can go back and, and write that other part. Um, and for me, that's very odd. But again, this is one of those things that that whole series is lined up to be seven books. It's all arced out. I'm trying to do one a year and get them out and get them done. I'm doing a bunch of the novellas and spending more stuff in there. But I don't want, because it, some of the material gets fairly dark. Um, and especially dark in my mm. head. I try to I, I try to scale it back a little bit because it's written 
it's written and meant to be somewhere around that new adult audience. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing explicit. Well, there's no explicit sex. There's not, there's, I don't think I've actually, I think I've actually edited out all the profanity. Um, but there, it's still, some of it gets very dark. I mean, the second book of it, I describe where, where purgatory came from because the second book is largely an underworld story. Um, you know, the, the story I use, not because it really doesn't spoil much, you find out fairly early on. I use the idea that it was of the Roman siege of Camarot. So, and I, do you know the story I'm of that? I'm not familiar. So the Essenes were during the Roman rebellion um, of the Jewish Roman rebellion, 80 AD, all that kind of good stuff. Well, the Essenes took refuge on Masada, which is this mesa up in the middle of Asin, nowhere in mm-hmm. the Middle East. And they they took refuge up there. They were up there for, if I remember correctly, about two years. Well, the Romans, trying to finish putting down the insurrection, this was really the last one of the major holdouts. So they surrounded the fortress of Masada. And it was, you know, it was complete families and everything up there on the mesa. Um, and, and a lot of the thought is the Essenes are the ones that created a lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls mm-hmm. material. There's some thought that uh, this is where some of those materials may have actually been created was up in, in okay. Masada. Anyway, uh, but anyway, one of the things that happens is when they realize that the Romans are not going to give up, they've been building this ramp up to the up to the entrance. They elect to go and have everyone. They start drawing mm-hmm. lots, and so about ten percent of the people draw a lot, and they're responsible for killing Ooh. their families, their friends. And then once they'd done that, they drew lots again and again and again until it was down mm-hmm. to two people. And of the last two, they drew lots. One of them kills the other, and that leaves only one to commit suicide. And so, the way I wrote it in the book even though I don't go to that level of detail, the idea behind it in the book is that when he mortally wounds himself, uh, a being comes in and makes him, basically an angel comes in, makes him a deal that says, hey, look, yeah, you've already kind of killed yourself, but if you want to continue to oversee your people and take care of your people because you were the the final one, if you're willing to take on that duty, we'll create an afterlife for you where you can help purge all of this. But unsaid in that is you're the only one who'll never have that ability. That's a nope. (laughs) Um, and so he takes the deal. And so in this book, purgatory, you've got Damascus and, and all those major middle Eastern cities are seen as cities of light. And he still lives up on the top of Masada. That's really cool. And has, and has to overwatch the fields and all the rest of this. So some of those kinds of concepts like that, how deep you'll get into them really depends on how well you know history. If you don't, you get enough of it to kind of get that, huh, okay, and you keep flying by. Well, and then the next thing you discover is, but if you happen to walk down the hall and you open the right door, then you also open your door and you're in the Elysian Fields. Hmm. 
not in the right place. Uh, I got to go back in the tunnels. I'm going to work my way down. I open the next door. So uh, one of the things that I use are the Titans um, for having literally built the universe. Hmm. They were kind of like the slave labor building parts of the universe after, after they were evicted um, and, and playing with some of those ideas. So looking and playing with some of those ideas, it can be fairly dark depending on how well you know it. And I've got, you know, I've, I've got rabid fans that are, you know, kids. Um, but at the same time, I've got fans. Uh, one of my beta readers is a therapist. One of my beta readers is a librarian. One of my beta readers is an anthropologist. One, you know, so I get a lot of different feedback and it's interesting to see what they tell me based off of what they got out of the book. And then occasionally I get this look that's like, you are a sick, sick (laughs) individual. It was funny, but you're a sick individual. And and, and that kind of goes back to the gnomes. That's funny. Um, That's funny. But I'm sorry. That's just (laughs) the idea that 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 was a thing and it's out there in the wild is amazing to me. So, I mean, that, that's the great joy of writing is you can go create anything you want to. You can go get it out of your system. You can put it to paper. Just because you've done that doesn't mean that another human being ever has to see it, read it, or give a shit about it. Hmm. You know, the, the act of creation and the act of writing, you know, a lot of what comes back to that is, what did you intend to do? Why did you intend to do that? Why did you intend to create that? You know, there, there's several people for help whom I help create content and write articles. And so a lot of the time I'll go and ask, you know, what was your intent behind writing that? What was your intent behind creating this idea? Even if it's business related, it's technology related, it's personally related. There still has to be a reason for doing that. Um, yeah. It, it, and a lot of the time, people are like, I just needed an idea. I had an idea, so I cranked it out. Like, why? And that's one of those things that if you're out there and you're creating and you're doing these things, you have to really question yourself sometimes, why am I writing this? Why am I doing it? Why am I doing it that way? Because, again, if you're the creator of it, you have control of it, and uh, somebody I was working with on on a professional development book, we went through, and part of what I had her doing was doing exercises based on her her career, how she got to where she was to to now with the mm-hmm. company she owns. And she's like, "I'm like, you show nothing but the upward path. Where are your challenges? Where's your you know, where are these problems that I know you have from your life because I've known you for a long time." Well, nobody cares about that. I'm like. That's what people care about. People don't care so much about the wins until they know what the challenges were. And that's true no matter what you're doing. If you're writing fiction, if you're writing nonfiction, if you're writing something, what's important is the idea. What's the story? What's the narrative? And what are the challenges? And, you know, looping back around to the reason why I like doing a lot of the horror, why I like doing a lot of the science fiction and why I like playing with a lot of the darker stuff 
is because we all have a dark side, even though a lot of people don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to recognize mm -hmm. it. It's true. And because, and, and because they don't want to see that, they don't want to, you know, in so much of the stuff that we see, that we read, that we do, you know, in the entertainment, it's all archetypes. It's all very fixed characters, very good, very bad, until you see somebody have to make that hard mm -hmm. choice and looking to see why somebody makes a hard choice or how they make that hard choice is they're really having to have a negotiation with that good side, that little angel sitting there on their shoulder and the little devil sitting on the other shoulder. Um, I can tell you a lot of days that, you know, the, the devil sitting on my shoulder has got a twin. He's kicked yeah. the angel <laughs> hell off and they're both have, and, and they're have, they're having the argument back and forth about which way to go. And the angel saying, excuse me, par pardon me. Are, are you sure? Are yet? Uh, oh, okay. You guys are going to go that way. Aren't you? All right, I'll come. I'm going yeah, to right. get a coffee. I'll be back. <laughs> call me when it's over. Um, call, yeah, call me when it's over. Call me when it's done. And looking at that, learn, looking and learning to embrace that dark side. Dark doesn't mean evil. Dark means those things that you've hidden, you've repressed. You know, there's a lot of benefit. There's a lot of good that can come out of that side as well. It's just sometimes really what that represents is the hard mm -hmm. choice. Yeah. And so I, I think that's what a lot of the time I'm working through. And, and the reason I write some of the things I do is because if there are choices that have to be made, I want one of the things that I, I've had people come and tell me from my writing, and I don't think I necessarily was conscious of it when I did some of this, but it, it's that driving idea behind learning to embrace your own self, you know, learning to live with the good, the bad, the ugly. I mean, we all have those things we've done. We're not proud of. We all have those things that we're not happy about with ourselves. And if anything I do, if, if one person comes and says the story you wrote about X changed my life to the good, then I consider that a win. If somebody comes and says, you know, I was having a hard time with something and I read something you've done or I heard you talk about this or, you know, anything along those lines and I get to have a positive impact, even though I'm playing with these dark topics. One of the things that I like to have most of the time is going to be that when you see that fight, that challenge, what's happening and coming out on the positive side. But at the same time, I don't believe in heroes that go through things that they go through and yet come out unscathed. We all are changed by challenges yeah, you in have life, to be. Both, both in good ways and bad. Uh, one of the things I'm doing to my poor character in that series is I'm giving him PTSD, mm. um, which at some point he's going to have to face and he's going to have to do that in book five. And because nobody's seen it, nobody's recognized it yet because he hasn't had that final trigger. I'm, you know, I'm giving him a lot of the initial signs and things like this. I mean, but if you look and go through the books, there is a lot of bloodshed. 
I mean, I spill a lot of blood. Not quite George R. R. Martin <laughs> spilling blood. That guy paints with um, it. Yeah. Um, he pa- yeah, he, he paints with blood and small well, penises. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a lot of blood. That's going to impact you. And, you know, the other thing is that most of, this, most of that storyline is, uh, the best description I've ever heard for that series is, take Harry Dresden, drop him into the world of American gods, and throw in a bit of good omens just for the mayhem. Cool. You know, it's not quite as, it's snarky, but it's, I, I try to, you know, that series I tell fairly straight, even though it, there's, you know, it, it's reading the humor. Because again, I go, you know, it's some of the fun, dark humor and how you play with ideas. And my character is just so straight laced and trying to figure out doing the right thing. And, but at the same time, he's been raised around gods his whole life. He didn't really know that's what Mm -hmm. it was. You know, he's been raised around, you know, these great powers, great magics, great ideas sitting in the real world. It blows up in his face as a kid. He doesn't really know what happened there either. Um, And I'll, I'll tell, you know, give this little thing. You're not going to find out what really happens until oh. book six. Um, yeah, I'm well, a bastard. You know, you got to be. <laughs> uh, uh, but that that'll ultimately feed into the big crisis of book six and book seven. Um, but at the same time, one of the ideas that I love to play with is people's realities. You know, what's your reality? I wrote an article not long ago that said that the title of it was how can you possibly believe that? Mm -hmm. And the, the point of the article really was we all see things through our own filter and no matter how close we are to people, no matter how well we know people, um, you know, if you look at social media and all the noise that's going on and the feuding and the fighting back and forth over Mm -hmm. nonsense, uh, you know, it, it's really that thing that says we as people all see and experience life through our own filters. We look and experience life and have our own ideals based on what we've been through, not what other people have been through. And one of those other ideas that I like to play with is that one that says, learn to recognize other people's realities. And that's one of those things that is very hard to do because you have to be ready and willing not to accept, but to acknowledge and empathize with people who have a differing viewpoint, even if it is absolutely batshit crazy. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And considering the climate of today, yeah, that's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. And, And so Looking and trying to convey that idea, I, I go to and I do a lot of events and I do a lot of very differing events. You know, my schedule in, you know, in we're in June, yep. right? Yeah, this is June. Um, you know, I got invited to go to go to an event in uh, Chattanooga that I can't do because I'm up in, you know, I'm doing an event for 10 days, you know, throwing heavy <laughs> objects and, and teaching other people to throw heavy objects. Um, and heavy people and do a lot of cooking and misbehaving. Good times. Um, that would be great. Yeah. 
that'd be grandfather mountain. Nice. So yeah, I'll be out there on the middle of the field for, for days and days. And we, you know, you're camped out with 10,000 of your best friends and two guys you can't stand. It's <laughs> um, a good way to describe it. And, and yeah, I, great time. I get to go see some, some of my best friends in the world uh, and hang out and have a good time. Then the next weekend uh, I'll be doing um, uh, congregate, which is in high point, North Carolina. Um, to go and play and, and do some stuff up there. Then I'll be doing Dragon Con. Uh, then I got another games in September. Then October, we're doing a book festival in West Virginia. And I'm still working on the rest of my year. We'll also do some tech conferences in there as well. Uh, so I hit a variety of events and I deal with a lot of different people and different personalities. Um, and again, you go back to where do I get character ideas from? You can't help but find it. Sometimes I'll. Yeah, sometimes all I have to do is watch my friends for a couple of minutes or tell them to follow me for a couple of minutes and tell me what I did. That's funny. Um, okay. So it's all about, you know, again, one of the things that I see from writers that I have gotten to know, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of extremely good close friends in this community now. And there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more I've gotten to know and, and at least sit with and chat with and talk to and, and do some fun stuff with. But at the same time, I see the same thing. The people who are successful in this business are the ones who remember it's a business. It's the ones who remember I've got to go create. I've got to get production done. Uh, I've got to embrace that creativity. I've got to use it. I've got to channel it but it's still a business and then be ready to get out there and work. And again, that's one of those things that is very hard for a lot of people to go through and do, uh, you know, where if you go to any writer's conference, you know, I, if I'm sitting there and happened this past weekend, I'm sitting in the booth. Um, you know, I had, I got to go share with again this weekend with the lovely nice. Usher. you know? Yeah. So, you know, because I was, in, I did 13 hours worth of panels. I think she did four or five. So she spent more time in the booth than I did, but she also knows all my stuff. And apparently the, the real magic to me selling my books is for me not to be the one in the That's booth. That's funny. <laughs> but. Um, buy my shit. Yeah, we, yeah, come buy my shit. Uh, yeah, that works really well when I've got a table next to John. We were kind of catty corner this time. Uh, but when you're sitting there and you have somebody come over and they say, I want to be a writer. Okay. Do you write? Yes. Then you're a writer. Do you want to be a published author? That's the question. Right. There is a distinction. There, there's a distinction and there's a difference. Why do you want to be published? What do you want to do with it? Is this something that you want to do just because you feel the need? You've got one story in you that you got to get out. And once it's out, you're done. Or is this you want to do it as a career or part of your career? You know, what is it you really want to do? And there, there's a certain way you have to do that because so many people, if you start asking questions and, and pointing stuff out about the challenges of the business and what it takes and, and what you do, so many people who are fabulous creatives are also introverted. Yeah. They're all, they, they can't, 
or they say they can't get in front of people. They say they can't talk. They can't do these things. It, it's not you can't. It's a matter of it's a challenge. And are you willing to go and face it and chase it um, and really learn to confront it? And there are a few people out there that really can't and never will. And that's okay. And that means you have to pursue other avenues, but it also means you may run into some, some limitations or challenges with your career. Not that you can't become successful. You just have to take, take a different approach. But most people will learn, can learn to be in front of people. You may not become a great speaker, but you can sit in front of people and you can talk and you can build relationships and you, you can have people feel interested enough in a conversation that they want to come talk to you further or they want to look at your stuff further. I mean, it, it, a lot of people I know do a lot of events, do a lot of conventions because fundamentally that's building your audience, that's connecting with your audience, and, and that's, that's getting your product out in the public. That's part of the reason I do it. Uh, the other part of the reason that I enjoy it, I get to go meet and play with and build friendships with some of the coolest people on the planet. And I get to go do all sorts of interesting things. I get whacked in the head by all sorts of interesting people. Um, the, the story behind that is uh, this past weekend we were doing a, a panel on the science, uh, the science behind Star hmm. Wars. And Stephanie Osborne, who is now an author, she's a full-time author. She used to work for NASA. She used to be on the shuttle program. Um, was sitting there, got got excited, and I got in the way. Oh boy! Um, but we had fun with that too. We were we were in the same area by that point because uh, somebody I knew from one of the other panels had had brought some in, and so we got in the same area. It was all good. Uh, you know. We did a late night panel. Um, Jeannie Adams, who used to be a marketing exec, she's an author, she's a marketing consultant, everything else. She does a, uh, a panel or does a presentation on how bodies decay and what happens to bodies and, and this sort of thing. But we, um, we wound up doing a late night mad scientist panel that everybody else thought was canceled, but we had a full room, so we went down. And we didn't have adult supervision, so we had fun for an hour and a half um, talking about different ways to kill the entire population of the planet, and we were gleeful about it. Um, and it probably should you know, disturb a lot of people, but I mean, we had fun with it. And you know, getting to go do those sorts of things, getting to go meet people I've met, getting, you know, it's like the old, you know, bumper sticker: getting to to go meet new, you know, interesting new people and and torment them. Nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, last year I got to meet somebody who whose stuff I've read the entire time since I was a kid, and I got to moderate him on a couple of panels and sit down and have dinner, which was Dr. Ben Bova. You know, I've read his stuff my entire life. He's you know he's done work with NASA. You know, he's written science fiction for forever. I mean, I think he's got a thousand books out there. Chelsea Quinn Yarborough, getting to sit down and talk to her and, and see her, you know, a couple of times a year. Um, you know, I've gotten to go meet Richard Cadry. You know, I've gotten to go meet Jim Butcher. I've gotten, you know, and go sit and hang out with them. Um, you know, and sit in the bar. It's, it, it, you know go to Dragon Con and, and sit down and, and meet with you know these guys and sitting in the writer's bar. Uh, you know, 
getting to go do those sorts of things, going and sitting and moderating a panel on why people are irrational in front of a room of NASA and JPL people. Uh, getting to go do those sorts of things is incredibly fun for me. Uh, it's also incredibly educational. It's also one of those things that forces you to be on your A game versus at the same time, uh, you know, last year, at the same time I'm doing that was down at um, a con in uh, New Orleans. Same time I was speaking on a bunch of the writers panels and I got to go sit with um, uh, another friend, somebody I, I now have gotten to know pretty well. Um, and, you know, we go sit down, we, we go crash the panel and um, he sits down and the first question comes over. Now, Robert Bevan writes uh, a series called Caverns and mm -hmm. Creatures. It's basically geeky D&D, &D, snarky stuff. He's got a ton of them out there. They're funny. They're not great literature by any means. But he sits down. This is the first time he's ever done a panel ever. Um, he's been living and teaching English in Korea for years more than a more than a decade if I remember right before he moved back here. He's moved from Korea to Mississippi. Ooh, there's a culture shock. Yeah. He's only been there for a little while. He comes in to sit down to do his first panel ever. And he sits down and the moderator looks over and goes, So where do you get your creative motivation from? And he gets this deer in the headlight look and he looks up and he leans forward and he goes, Dick <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. It's like, all right, Robert, go back to sleep. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, you never know exactly what you're going to get. And I was hanging out with him this past weekend. They've got a, so if you're on the writer track or doing the gaming route and need humor, they've got a podcast called um, Authors and Dragons that, you know, is horror authors that played D and D very badly That's and cool. drink. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, I sort of crashed and heckled that last week, <laughs> but getting to getting to be friends with some of these guys and knowing some of the people and, and doing some of these things while it's part of the business and it's part of building the career. It's also one of those things that is incredibly fun. Um, there's other, you know, friends of mine that I got to go, I get to see three or four times a year, and so it's one of those things you, you've got to learn to love and embrace. But again, remember, it's also part of the business so that anytime you're doing an event, you're out there when you're out there in that public persona. Uh, you also have to remember not to be an asshole. I could see where that would come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are plenty of people who are. Um, not that I'm going to mention any names, but just look up the Hugo Awards for the last few years. <laughs> and, the, and, and the wars that have been going on there and things that absolutely no one cares about outside of a very small right. community. Uh, you know, one of the, the, probably the hardest thing is if you're going to go out and you're going to do things publicly and you're going to speak publicly, you're going to write, you're going to put material out there in front of people. Somebody's not going to like you. Somebody's not going to like your stuff. You have to develop a thick skin. I kind of already came with one. Um, <laughs> but I know, uh, 
again, it's one of those things if you're creative and you're artistic and you have poured your heart, your soul, your very being into bringing a work to life and somebody says, eh, it's not my thing, that can still be one of those things that tells you, oh my God, I suck, I'm horrible, I should never do another word. You know, even if you've got a hundred people tell you this is the most beautiful, impactful thing ever, and one person goes, it's you're not my thing, on the one person. you're going to focus yeah. on the one person. If you, if you have, you know, or if you really get the one troll that's out there that, that comes and says, you know, shreds because the comma was out of place. You know, the grammar yeah. Nazis that love to leave Amazon reviews, you know, that most of them are, you know, they're frustrated writers right. anyway, um, that don't want to produce work or whatever else. It's how do you go and fight those battles? So it's all those moving That's pieces. Awesome. Well, we've had you on here. We, I've had you on here. <laughs> I speak of us in the empirical we, um, the royal we, exactly, now. for about an hour and about an hour and a half. Before I let you go, I want you to be able to tell the listeners where they can find your books and, you know, give them the where, you know, the websites, book, you know, brick and mortar, everywhere. Sure. First of all, uh, most everything right now is through Amazon. I've got some other stuff you can find in all the usual brick and mortars under a couple of different names. But uh, like I say, for the most part, not in the brick and mortars unless you order them. Don't, none of my stuff is through any of the publishing houses big enough to push that. I do have some stuff in some of the indie bookstores. The biggest, best player is usually Amazon. You know, you can find me at gem-mcdonald.net. Uh, if you want to read the occasional rantings or I throw short stories out there, I play with, with fun ideas. Like at, at Valentine's, I was part of a bloody Valentine's thing, so I wrote a, a Cupid story where I make Keep it a bourbon, bourbon swilling, <laughs> cigar smoking, miscreant, basically. So, yeah, I'll throw stuff out there. I don't give my, my website quite as much love as I probably should. And then the writer's mind, if you are interested more in the business side of creativity, uh, if you're interested just sort of in some of the, the other stuff that goes on, uh, that is the writer mind, and that is the writermind.net, not writers, even though the, the business name is writer's mind. But somebody locked that shit up on... <laughs> You know, why, why they didn't know I was coming, well, I have no idea. But, yeah, it's thewritermind.com. There's a YouTube channel that will start having some content go up. Like, say, the podcast, all that kind of stuff will be going up. Uh, you can get there from my other website. Uh, right now, I just released the uh, omnibus version of books one, two, and three. It's called the Winter Trilogy. It's the, the first series is called the Home Summoning Series. The uh, second series right now that I've got out is uh, the Longbow Files that ties into it. Uh, if you're looking for the Gnome book, because you absolutely must have it, uh, the, the, the title of it is called Nobody's Business. Um, <laughs> that's great. And there's a second one out that's called Spirits of the Season that is more of a traditional horror story set in Charleston, uh, has some of the same characters and stuff in it. Uh, there's a third one I'm working on that eventually will come out. Uh, I've got the new series that is all about what happens if you lay off the middle management of the of the Illuminati. <laughs> so it's more it's more conspiracy based. Uh, if you want to know a little bit more of some of the stuff I've dealt with over the years from a fictional basis, I'm neither confirming nor denying that there might be a little bit of that sneaking into that book series. I don't. Uh, 
we don't have the final titles and stuff for that yet, but that should be coming out later. Uh, if you're interested in the HB2 anthology, that's out there under We Are Not This. Um, I've got one of the stories in that. I occasionally do write over at HuffPost. Uh, I've started writing for The Swamp and for Omni. There's a couple of other spots that probably most everybody's not going to care about because it's it's stuff that six people read and four oh, people geez. can understand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I say, I, I put a fair number of articles and things like that out there. I do develop content stuff for, for other people as well. So yeah, that's right now. That's the majority of the stuff that's out there. I do have some hard sci-fi that should be coming out sometime next year. Uh, I'm trying to get rights back on some stuff that hasn't been out in a very long time and may reissue some of that. So we'll see. I'm a cause cool. of trouble. Thanks again, James, for coming on. This has Anytime. been Spark. Catch you later, guys.
about the 